Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. You're listening to the April Almanac edition of Fair Folk for 2023. In these Almanac episodes, I share mostly Northern European calendar custom to help you orient to the month ahead, equipped with knowledge of nourishing traditions that can help you reconnect to the natural cycles of the year, to land and to the life in plants, animals, our bodies, and ourselves. Seasonal folklore and festivals call us back into community with all beings on the earth, with its regular spinning wheel of life and death, and they help us to tend through ritual the ties we have to our kin of all species, both our ancestral kin and our kin in the future to come. This month, April, is a month full of welcoming and stimulating and internalizing new life in the form of plants, birds, and their eggs, and the worship of solar-related deities, especially those connected to the dawn. This episode even includes a recipe, which is rare. This month was known in Scandinavia generally as Grass Month, because this is when the grass begins to grow again. The new moon was known as the Maiden of April, or the Spring Maiden. And a lot of Germanic countries, at least, tended to feminize this month and this season. There tends to be a sense of the spring being feminine or being a young woman in some way. And I know this isn't exclusive to Germanic areas, but it is a really interesting feature that we'll go into a little further later in the episode. The new moon this month is on April 19th. And I tell you when the new moon is specifically because, as far as I understand it traditionally, at least in Germanic areas, the new moon was of some greater importance than the full moon as an indicator of a festival date or the beginning of a month. And I know that's a pretty big generalization, but we tend to overemphasize the importance of the full moon when I know that the new moon is the beginning of a cycle. And when we're talking about months, I typically understand that the beginning of the month is the beginning of the moon cycle, which is when the moon is dark. Significant dates this month for European folklore and paganism include April 1st, which is, as we know it, April Fool's Day, but could also be called Gauk Day or any number of days throughout this month as Cuckoo Day. Gauk Day is a Scottish word for Cuckoo Day, and various Cuckoo Days would be celebrated around the UK, depending on when the cuckoo bird arrives in any given region. Next is Palm Sunday, which falls on April 2nd this year, Easter Sunday, which falls on April 9th, the week following Palm Sunday, and St. George's Day on April 23rd. I'll start out by talking about April Fools, cuckoos, and traditions of hunting the gauk in Scotland. So you're probably familiar, if you live in the Western world, with this holiday called April Fools. And it's a secular folkloric holiday that's celebrated in the West. 
In the past, it was sometimes referred to as All Fools Day. And you're probably familiar with experiences from childhood of having pranks played on you or witnessing pranks being played on other people. Hopefully none of them were too traumatizing for you. I know I really liked playing tricks on my parents when I was a kid. It's not entirely clear where this holiday originated or why, but it does seem to have some relationship to the springtime and the sense of a new beginning. Because a fool, which is who this holiday is named after, is, in other words, a naive person. And this is the moment when all of the plant life and all of the bird life in many northern climates is being reborn. It's starting from scratch. It's starting from zero, the egg. And interestingly, in the tarot deck, in the tarot system, you could call it, the card called the Fool from the Major Arcana is card zero and represents exactly this idea of being newborn, of being without experience, but also because of that, without fear, without hesitation. And so you see in this card in the Rider Weight deck, which is one of the most common a fellow, or rather like a genderless looking person with a little bindle over his shoulder on a stick and a little dog by their side. And this person is about to walk off a cliff. But the implication in the card is neutral, that this person is going to probably be okay, or that being frozen in this motion of about to jump off a cliff with a smile on their face, presumably, is archetypal. So it's not good or bad. It's just one of the moments that's available to us in life, one of the gestures that we can make of taking a leap of faith, you could say. One popular way of playing an April Fool's joke on someone in Scotland, England, and Wales, traditionally, is to send them on what's called a fool's errand, which is where we get that expression now. That is to give them a mission that they cannot actually complete and which may just generally be a pun or a way of making them look ridiculous or naive. And ideally, one would involve as many other people as possible in executing this joke and sending the person further and further along. That would be a very successful fool's errand. Some impossible tasks that would be given to naive young people in England, included directing them to a non-existent address or asking them to fetch pigeon's milk or strap oil, which is slang for a beating, or maybe a biography of Eve's mother. And if you're familiar with the story of Eve, Eve was considered by Christians to be the first human, so would therefore not have a mother. In Ireland, a favorite thing to do in the past was to send someone to a friend's house with an envelope, and inside the envelope was the written direction to send the fool farther. Then they would send the poor person to another address until they eventually caught on to the joke. One really compelling explanation or connection that is more obvious in Scotland is that this practice of sending someone on a fool's errand was called hunting the gawk. And like I mentioned earlier, the gawk is a vernacular term for the cuckoo bird. And if you're not familiar with 
the folklore of the cuckoo bird, it's a very interesting creature because, for one, it migrates, so it leaves in the winter, and then in the springtime it comes back, and that's how people measure when the summer is coming. The cuckoo's first call that they hear is an indication that spring is here. So in Scotland, people would keep an eye on these stones, which were called gauk stones, which could be any number of historical standing stones. It could be a way marker. It could be a tall stone of some kind that would acquire the name of a gauk stone. And we don't know exactly when or how that happened. There are several still around the landscape. And folks would watch the stone. And when the first cuckoo is seen landing on the stone, that is officially the beginning of spring. Spring has arrived and summer is coming. And of course, the British Isles are not the only place that cuckoos signal the beginning of spring or are associated with the dawn of the year. I would say that any place in Europe that had migratory cuckoos would take note of when they arrived as one of the first migratory birds to return. Cuckoos also have a very distinctive nesting practice or a distinctive way of dealing with their young. And what cuckoos do is they will lay their eggs in another bird's nest and allow the other bird to raise their young, which is a pretty distinctive practice that stands out among common birds and makes the cuckoo all the more potent in its folkloric meanings. It could be that April Fool's Day was a later development or a co-development with observation of cuckoo birds returning in the spring and planting their eggs in other birds' nests because the other birds are none the wiser and therefore are made victim to this nesting parasitism. And I think it's really interesting, if you look further into cuckoo folklore, you can find more about the word cuckold, which is very likely derived from the word cuckoo, which is a derogatory term from the Middle Ages for a man whose wife had been unfaithful. But I think what's really interesting about the cuckoo is that it is so closely connected with this moment of freshness of new beginning. Its eggs are like somehow miraculous and special and different and treated unconventionally. And I think that that's a cool idea. I think that non-conventional family structures, the idea of fostering children, don't have to be negative in a culture that we live in now, which is not so rigidly conforming to heteronormative principles of how reproduction and child raising should be. I think it's kind of an interesting pattern disrupt. And the fact that there has been so much attention paid to the cuckoo in folklore, which I'm only barely scratching the surface of here, is a testament to people's interest in that disruption of pattern and in other ways of being born and coming up in the world and other ways of perhaps collaborating. And there is a really interesting connection that I won't go into here, but I've been wondering about for years between the cuckoo bird and dawn goddesses, which seem to be also associated with this time of year in European folklore, though that connection is a little more tenuous or a little harder to prove. April specifically connected with dawn goddesses. But there is also an association between 
Indo-European dawn goddesses and the fostering of children, which would be worth looking into if you're someone who researches folklore and mythology and history. In the Baltic region, in Finland, Latvia, and Lithuania, the cuckoo bird is understood to be strongly associated with fate and the future and with predictions of the future, especially around midsummer. And there are many songs in these song traditions referring to the cuckoo and speaking directly to the cuckoo and asking for information from the other world or from beyond human comprehension. I found this wonderful Finnish song from the Finnish-Lithuanian-Canadian band Honeypaw about the cuckoo. This is a midsummer song, but I'm importing it to April for the sake of the arrival of the cuckoo. It's called Cuckoo Kaki Kultarinta, and the lyrics translated into English ask the cuckoo to predict the future. Should I go a week as a shepherd? Should I go a year or nine? Should I go two or eight?
every year around Easter time, social media among pagan and folklore interested people runs amok with discussion of a figure called Eostra from Old English. And one of the reasons that this figure is spoken about at this time of year is because in 725, the Anglo-Saxon chronicler Bede wrote a treatise called The Reckoning of Time, and he mentioned about the month of April that Eostermonath, which we now interpret as the Easter month, comes from the goddess Eostra. We now call the Paschal season by her name, thereby referring to the joys of the new festival with the ancient designation. So the word for Easter in other languages is not Easter, but in English, the word for Easter, apparently, according to Bede, the chronicler, comes from a goddess named Eostra, which the month of April is named after. And following this probably true statement from this medieval chronicler who didn't have an investment in making up pagan history, as far as we know, he's a Christian. Following this, Jacob Grimm of the famous Grimm brothers theorized that there must be a Germanic goddess, an equivalent goddess called Ostara. And those names are related because of the root of both of those words, because the root of both of those names comes from the Indo-European for East, which is the place where the sun rises, which is why this name type is popularly associated with goddesses of the dawn. So Indo-European languages across the board typically have a goddess of the dawn whose name is closely connected with the word for East, which makes a lot of sense if you think of it. The word Ostara is not, as far as anyone knows, a historical word beyond the 19th century when Jacob Grimm theorized it, but it has been used by some Wiccans to refer to the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, which happened just a couple of weeks ago in March. And there has been a lot of Easter folklore that has been associated with this goddess Eostra, like rabbits and eggs and all kinds of things that are connected with the Easter time. But there is no direct evidence of Eostra specifically in any other document aside from that one mention of her in Beads on the Reckoning of Time. But that does not mean that the goddess Eostra didn't exist or that dawn goddesses didn't exist because it is extremely well attested across the European record that there is a goddess of the dawn and that there was a great amount of mythology, folklore, folk song, and ritual associated with her. For example, the Lithuanian goddess Aushrine, Roman goddess Aurora, the Greek goddess Eos, and originally the one that many of them are derived from, or at least an older version of the same figure, the Vedic goddess called Ushas. And in the Vedas, in the Rig Veda specifically, there are several hymns devoted specifically to her. And a lot of the imagery of the color red, the sun rising, the morning star, chariots of the sun, and all manner of imagery related to the dawn 
and the rising of the sun from the Rig Veda can be seen in echoes across European pagan tradition and folklore through the ages. And so some of that information I would associate with dawn goddesses, but I wouldn't specifically associate with Aostra, who may have been simply a regional goddess in the area where Bede was writing. A lot of this dawn goddess folklore was taken up by the Virgin Mary in Christian times. You may have heard expressions calling Mary the morning star or the star of the sea or the queen of heaven, which is an older name as well, but relates her to celestial beings such as the sun, who is often in at least Baltic and sometimes Finnish, I think, folk songs shown as being married to another sky deity. In 2021, I made an episode of Fair Folk Podcast all about these dawn goddess figures. I go into great detail about where they're attested and the kinds of imagery and song also that's associated with them. And that includes references to the Virgin Mary and sometimes Jesus and sometimes Lucifer as well. I made a whole episode that you can listen to. It's called Goddess of the Dawn, and I will link it in the show notes. And maybe I'll even re-release it so that it's easier to find. I also made a whole playlist of songs that are related to Goddess of the Dawn mythology and folklore, many of them Christian, but influenced by this Indo-European and probably possibly global phenomenon of an association with the sunrise and a feminine figure. So the month of April specifically has been connected with Aostra, and it makes sense if you map the year onto a day where the winter solstice, the darkest time of year, is like the midnight of a solar day if the year were a single day, and therefore April would be the dawn. It's when the sun starts to return and plant life starts to awaken, just like we awaken when the sun rises at dawn. There is a medieval hymn to the Virgin Mary in Middle English that I really enjoy, and I'll share it with you here. It describes the Virgin Mary as the ray of dawn which rises out of the darkest night. From you, the song says, springs new illumination, bathing the whole creation, the whole world, in light. This is Eddie Beodu Haven Aquena by Helena Eck and Goran Manson. Sweet, he led me, though he went, have 
The Christian celebration of Easter falls on April 9th this year, but the preparations for Easter in European folklore, influenced by Christianity, begin at least a week earlier with Palm Sunday. Easter is one of the biggest and most joyful celebrations in the Christian calendar, and in the week prior to Easter, which is celebrated as the resurrection of Jesus, which was intentionally placed at a time of year where plants, animals, and nature is reborn, light is reborn. The week leading up to Easter is a time where Christian texts are read that refer to different moments in Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion, which is recognized on what's called Good Friday, the Friday before Easter Sunday, and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday that is the Sunday before Easter on April 2nd, celebrates Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem, where people laid palm fronds on the ground in front of the path of his donkey as a sign of respect. So in Christian tradition, folks have a huge number of different practices relating to palm fronds, at least nominally on Palm Sunday, Many different congregations will fashion crosses out of them. Others will carry them in procession or decorate a church with them. But you might imagine that through the Middle Ages and up to the present in most rural areas of Northern Europe, at least, people don't have access to palm fronds. It would be a huge cost and inconvenience to ship palm fronds to every Christian congregation in the world, though I think there's some attempt at doing that now because I grew up in a Catholic church and we had palm fronds every year on Palm Sunday to make into crosses and bring into the home. But Northern European Palm Sunday traditions are some of my favorite of the year, partly because of the way that they just so enthusiastically embrace the regional nature of the place that they're celebrating this thing. It feels like these traditions may have preceded the Christian influence and I'm sure they did, but maybe not on this exact calendar date or associated specifically with April, for example, because this is the time when in the North, plants are just beginning to show leaves. I'm pretty far North where I am, so I've seen a couple of leaves of grass and some very, very tiny shoots. Other places are entirely green by now, but in most places in the Northern Hemisphere, it is still a time of youthful vegetation. It's a time when leaves are still new. It's the beginning of the plant year. So regional traditions of Palm Sunday employ regional plants. And it seems that they draw focus away from the idea of palms and worshiping Jesus into this idea of a green bough that is suffused with life force and energy and newness and is just like bursting with life in that green way that you can witness when you see a new plant. It has a, a greenness that's so much brighter and more concentrated and feels more dynamic, maybe, 
than the heaviness of mature leaves at the end of summer, for example, if they stay green that long in the region where you live. So all over Europe, in areas that celebrate Palm Sunday, it would be common for folks to have some sort of ritual practice employing new green boughs, whether it's decorative, whether it's for blessing, whether it's for protection, whether it's to make an ornament that you'll keep in the house for the rest of the year, or a sort of corsage out of greenery that you would wear for Palm Sunday and maybe for all of Holy Week, which is what the week before Easter is called. You might carry them in a parade. Some places people would bring their own boughs, they would gather boughs and bring them to the church for a blessing and then bring them home and dip them in water and sprinkle that water around the house for protection until the next Easter. It's a a way of cleansing the home, a spring cleaning that combines water, which is increasing in accessibility and clarity at this time of year, with the life force of these new green boughs and the blessing that they received at church. And the plant that's used totally varies depending on the region, as you might imagine, because different plants come into leaf sooner than others in different places. Some places may have flowers, some places may not. But in Cornwall, in the 1880s, an an older fellow said that it was the custom in his village to bring mountain ash into the house and to decorate the doorway on Good Friday. And I imagine this is in a protective manner because this has been recorded all over the British Isles as a protection mountain ash against bad luck and magic. In Staffordshire, apparently hawthorn, which is a plant associated with fairies and the supernatural already, was brought into the house on the Thursday before Easter to protect the house from lightning for the year in particular. In Poland and Lithuania, I recommend you look this up online, there's a beautiful tradition of elaborately decorating what would be called Easter palms So taking greens and decorating them with flowers into these really incredible sort of bouquet. I can't really describe what they are. (laughs) I think you should look them up. Look up Easter palms from Poland and Lithuania. And people would parade these through town after blessing them at the church. And then the following year, any leftover palms from the church would be gathered up and burned to make ash, which people are anointed with on Ash Wednesday earlier in the year. This is a time of year to notice the new things that are growing all around you. Whether it's birds and their nests and their young, or whether it's plants and their greenery, there's an opportunity to take this sense of newness, this sense of vitality into yourself by making contact with the plants that are growing around you. And one of the most potent ways I've seen this expressed in tradition is to take these green boughs, which are associated with this week, or maybe Palm Sunday specifically, and to whip one another with them. (laughs) There's traditions in the Baltic area, specifically in Poland, and I think further in Slavic areas as well, of waking one another up with a whipping from these green boughs. So I don't recommend that anybody go around non-consensually hitting one another with branches at this moment in time, but I do think there is a super beautiful, potent ritual element to 
the consensual striking with green boughs at this time of year, which you've probably heard of in sauna culture, which promotes circulation and is smells wonderful. I think if you're someone who improvises rituals of any kind, especially spring rituals, incorporating green boughs to some degree would be a fantastic idea at this time of year, whether you're just fashioning them into some beautiful wreath or decoration, whether you're blessing your house with water or whether you're waking yourself up or your friends by striking them lightly with the branch. There's a lovely Christian hymn that was written in the 19th century that refers to the resurrection of Jesus at Easter and in the springtime, but mostly through vegetation metaphors. It's a song about the resurrection of life and love and light and plant life through the metaphor of the green blade rising from the buried grain. This is Now the Green Blade Riseth by Cademan.
Now, I can't have an April episode and mention Palm Sunday at great length without also talking about Easter itself. So Easter Sunday is the climax of this season in the Christian calendar. And so it's placed at the climax of spring in the Northern Hemisphere. And this is the day that the demigod Jesus walked from his tomb and rose from the dead. I still resonate with the idea of rebirth at this time of year, not because I personally connect over much with the figure of Jesus, but because it feels like things are born anew at this time of year. It's very obvious that there's young animals all around and young plants and a sense of freshness and running water. And this is also a time where folklore suggests that people do spring cleaning. So a big part of celebrating Easter in Ireland, for example, is to thoroughly clean and whitewash the house itself. Because in the traditional Irish cottage, typically people would whitewash the outside regularly. Water was blessed at church on Easter Sunday in many places and was believed to remain fresh forever. And Easter is also one of the most popular times across Europe to visit a holy well. People would clean wells and decorate them at Easter all over Europe. In Switzerland and Germany, there's a tradition of elaborately dressing up public wells or fountains with evergreen boughs and colored eggs and ribbons in the shape of huge crowns. There's really beautiful images of this online, and it makes me feel like in my heart, really touched to imagine this reverence for a water source, for sacred water at this time of year, and a sense of giving it a new start. Since well-dressing and devotion to sacred springs goes long, long back before Christianity, it's also pretty clear that this tradition, in some respect, originates there as well. One folk tradition that almost goes without saying that takes place at Easter time is the decorating and eating of eggs. One explanation for the popularity of eggs at Easter time is the fact that Catholics, which is what most Christians were until the Reformation, gave eggs up for the period of Lent and only began eating them again on this day. But a much more natural explanation for the importance of eggs at Easter time, aside from any dawn goddesses or rabbit folklore, is just the fact that this is when birds begin <laughs> laying eggs again in nature, but also domestic fowl lays eggs in much greater quantity beginning in the springtime. And the power of the egg as a symbol of new life, if I'm not like beating a dead horse here. It can't be overstated. Fertility, hope, these are all aspects of this time of year that are just bursting forth from nature itself. And really interestingly, eggs feature in a lot of origin stories of the world. We now tend to make an egg hunt for Easter. That's a popular North American tradition, at least. But in past times, instead of hunting for eggs, folks would decorate eggs and then they would roll them down a hill in a race, a competition to divine who would be married first. So very much fertility symbolism embedded in this particular egg 
ritual. And maybe the eggs wouldn't necessarily be decorated in this case. They might just be marked to know whose is whose. But I love the idea of an egg race. And also factored in is not only the speed, but also the condition of the egg by the time it got to the bottom. So if you're hurling it down the hill, it would become cracked and you'd be disqualified. Another connection between Easter time and hills that I find particularly interesting because of my fascination with dawn goddesses personally is the fact that there is a really popular tradition in England, Scotland, and Ireland that says that on Easter morning, the sun as it rises will dance. So it might change colors or it might bounce In the Scottish Highlands, it was even reported to whirl around like a mill wheel and give three joyful leaps. And people would, if they could, climb to the top of a hill to witness this performance. And sometimes they would watch the reflection of the sun in a tub or a jar of clean water if they didn't want to look directly at it. And this is super resonant to dawn goddess folklore in several ways. Number one, Dawn goddesses are often described as dancing joyfully as they rise. Number two, they tend to be connected with hills, especially in Celtic areas, because we know the goddess Brigid is associated with the dawn and liminal times, but also hills, because there are several places in Celtic mainland Europe, hills that are called variations on the route for Brigantia, which is an equivalent or related goddess in continental Celtic tradition. So hills are associated with dawn goddesses in general, but also specifically, it seems, in Celtic paganism. Moreover, watching the sunrise in a vessel filled with water is a connection with a lot of dawn goddess folklore as well, because in a very complex web of connections, but one that persists across Indo-European dawn goddess lore, the sun is said to rise out of water in some way, out of the ocean or out of a river or out of a lake. There's an association between the dawn, the sunrise, and bodies of water. Because if you lived on the coast, you would see the sun rising out of water. Although there's probably some more to that as well. In any case, this is a practice that I highly recommend. I've done it myself before. You can choose whatever date in April feels most resonant to you. Could be April 1st. It could be Easter Sunday. It could be the first new moon in April, which is the 19th. Could be on a full moon, whatever you like getting up before dawn, climbing a hill, and watching the sunrise on a morning in spring, especially bringing some well water or fresh running water with you and using it in some ritual way is a truly magical experience. And I love the idea of looking out to see what strange visions one might have while watching the sun as it rises. Finally, I'd like to share about St. George's Day, which happens on April 23rd every year. St. George is the patron saint of several countries, including England, 
about which you may have heard, but also Georgia and Bulgaria and others. The most popular legend regarding St. George describes how he battled with a dragon and won. And you may have seen icons of St. George if you've been in Catholic regions where he is on a horse and he is stabbing usually a spear downwards and trampling over some sort of serpent or dragon-like figure. The earliest story about St. George is about his martyrdom at the hands of the pagan Roman emperor Diocletian. It's a common story in saints' lives, the idea that the person refused to renounce their Christian faith and so was put to death. So earlier versions of this icon of him slaying a dragon actually show him slaying the emperor Diocletian. So sometimes this has been read as a metaphor for St. George as a symbol of Christianity slaying paganism itself, which is sometimes embodied in the figure of a serpent or a dragon, though this isn't always the case. The origin of the narrative of an epic hero battling and slaying a dragon goes as far back as the Rig Veda, again, one of the earliest recorded mythological influences on what we call Indo-European languages, if I didn't mention that earlier. The reason the story of the dragon-slaying hero is so widespread in European tradition is because its roots go so extremely far back in the language that encodes many of the ancient religious beliefs and mythologies, or can. You might recognize an analog to this story in Norse mythology of Thor in a little boat battling Jormungandr, the world serpent, and again at the end of the world at Ragnarok. It clearly has cosmological significance, this idea of a snake or a dragon or a water serpent of some kind in conflict with a hero, which in Norse mythology was often a thunder god, but didn't always have to be, as you'll see in an example I'll share next. First, I'll give you a song performed by Watterson Carthy, an English folk song which was written in 1978 by John Kirkpatrick for group singing events and has been used in mummers plays and sometimes Morris dancing. I've seen mummers plays in the wintertime that feature St. George, who is sometimes figured as King George, who is a representative of death and rebirth, very appropriate at this time of year. And this song describes the exploits of St. George and his relevance to England. So this is St. George by Watterson Carthy. Song of St. George be your battle cry, and on my breast, a 
boat into slaughter and by those means won the king of Egypt's daughter on my breast the red, red rose the flower of old England wherever she grows and I fought with a dragon and I brought him to shame I was killed seven times but I still fought again I was killed seven times but it did me no and God being willing, I'll fight against you. Come on my breast, a red, red rose. The flower of old England, wherever she grows. I was struck out of seven seas into five score. The like it was never seen in England before. But he gave me a challenge no one it denies. See how I flew. See how low he lies On my breast A red, red rose The flower of old England Wherever she goes Now up goes St George So fair and so fine The star on his breast That like silver to shine He kindles the hearts Of all women and men May the victory be ours And the final There's an old English charm, so that's sort of like a magical spell that you would speak or sing, and this one is meant to be sung, that I think of every year at this time because of the occurrence of St. George's Day and also Palm Sunday and traditions around new growth of herbs and plants. And this is popularly known as the Nine Herbs Charm. So Old English writing is early medieval writing. It's not from Shakespeare's time. Sometimes people use the term Old English to refer to any English that's older. This is Old English. This is the oldest version of English that is written down. And there aren't very many documents that exist in Old English. So often it's impossible to translate specific words. And this charm refers to nine different plants. It's called actually Nigon Wirte Galdor, which translates more into nine worts Galdor. And like Galdor is like a Germanic spell or charm. <laughs> and a wort is just a, an Old English name for any plant, which you might recognize in the names of St. John's wort or mugwort. This charm refers to nine different plants that can be made into a salve and applied to a person with a wound, which possibly is infected. And the words of the charm are provided and they describe the mythological connection between these nine plants, of which we can only identify some because the words are not the same anymore and many of them would be vernacular terms for the plants, and the mythological context of the god Woden, which is the Old English name for Odin, and his battle with a serpent or a worm. And it describes how these herbs were used by Odin to conquer many different colored dragons, which represent different ailments that the body needs to dispel. It's amazing that this charm still exists. 
I'm going to share it with you in its entirety. So if this is dull for you, feel free to skip forward until I'm no longer chanting Old English charms. But again, I can't sing this at this moment. I encourage you to try. I'm working from an amazing translation, a new translation from Joseph Stanley Hopkins, who is an academic that I know and whose work I really admire. He runs a blog called Mimisbrunner, and he provides both the Old English original, which you could try to sing if you can come up with a melody. It's in alliterative verse, which is different than the poetry many of us are used to, modern English poetry. But he also provides a translation, which I'll read to you, which is not in verse, so it makes it a little more difficult. <laughs> Maybe one day, if you ask me nicely, I could try to sing the Nine Herbs Charm to you in Old English, but it would take a bit more practice than I have time for right now. So here is Joseph Stanley Hopkins' translation of Nigon Wirtegaldor. Remember, Mugwort, what you brought to pass, what you readied at Regenmeld. You are called Una, that most ancient plant. You defeat three, you defeat thirty, you defeat venom, you defeat air illness, you defeat the horror who stalks the land. And you, waybred, plant mother, you're open to the east, yet mighty within. Carts creaked over you, women rode over you, over you brides bellowed, over you bulls snorted. You withstood it all, and you pushed back. You withstood venom, you withstood air illness, you withstood the horror who travels over the land. Now this plant is called Stune, she who grows on stone. She defeats venom, she grinds away pain. She is called Stilva, she who withstands venom. She chases away malice, casts out pain. This is the plant that fought against the worm. She is mighty against venom, she is mighty against air illness, she is mighty against the horror who travels over the land. You, venom loathe, go now, the less from the great, the great from the less, until for both he receives a remedy. Remember chamomile, which you brought to pass, and what you accomplished at Allerford, that no one should lose their life to disease, since for him chamomile was prepared. Finally, this plant known as wergaloo, who a seal sent over sea ridges to aid against venom. These nine plants defeat nine venoms. A worm came slithering, and yet he killed no one, for wise Woden took nine glory twigs and smote the serpent, who flew into nine parts. There, apple overcame venom. There, the worm would never find shelter. Phila and fennel, a most mighty pair, the wise lord shaped these plants while he, holy, hung in the heavens. He sent them from the seven worlds, seven ages of man, for wretched and wealthy alike. She stands against pain. She stands against venom. She is potent against three and against thirty, against a foe's hand, against great guile, against malice and bewitchment from animal and spirit. Now, May the nine plants do battle against nine glory fleers, against nine venoms and against nine air diseases, against the red venom, against the running venom, against the white venom, against the blue venom, against the yellow venom, against the green venom, against the black venom, against the blue venom, against the brown venom, against the purple venom, 
against worm blister, against water blister, against thorn blister, against thistle blister, against ice blister, against venom blister. If any venom comes flying from the east, or any comes from the north, or any from the west over folk. Christ stood over illness of every kind, yet I alone know water running where the nine serpents guard. Now may all plants arise, seas ebb, all salt water, when I blow this venom from you. I'll read you the instructions on how to apply this charm and salve as well, as they are included in this document, as translated by Joseph Stanley Hopkins. Ingredients. Mugwort, whey bread open to the east. That's called plantain for us now. Lambscress, venom loathe, chamomile, nettle, sour apple of the wood. That's crab apple. Phila and fennel, and also old soap. You prepare and apply the salve. You work these plants to dust and mix them with apple mush. Make a paste of water and ashes. Take fennel and mix the plant into the boiling paste. You bathe the wound with an egg mixture, both before the patient applies the salve and after. And the way you use the charm is you sing the galder over each of the nine plants. Sing the galder three times before the patient self-applies the salve, and sing the galder three times on the apple. Then you sing the galder into the patient's mouth, you sing the galder into each of the patient's ears, and before the patient applies the salve, sing the galder into the patient's wound. I feel like this charm can be of huge interest to herbalists specifically and to others who are interested in folk magic. And I will link this translation and analysis of the text in the show notes. I think it's the best one that I've seen. And if anyone is feeling very adventurous, I would love to hear you try singing this song in Old English. A really interesting practice that's popular in various places in Europe during Holy Week or in the weeks around Easter is making a nine herbs soup, which is one of the reasons that I always think of the nine herbs charm at this time of year. And to make this soup, the recipe varies all over the place, but you go out into springtime countryside and gather nine edible plants or leaves that are growing so far. And often it's a way of marking time when there are enough things growing that you know are edible and safe and healthy that you could make a meal including nine of them at this time of year. And of course, in the Christian tradition, this is associated with the rebirth of life connected to Jesus and celebrating Easter. But it feels to me that it's also an incredibly important time to be gathering nutritionally dense foods in the first time that fresh food has been available in the entire year since last summer and autumn. And so there is a magical quality to these new shoots and leaves. And especially nettle, I know, is often super abundant in wetter regions in the springtime and is delicious and edible and full of iron and other nutrients. There's something about combining these first plants in a ritual way using a ritually significant number. The number nine is really 
prominent in Germanic folklore and mythology, but the number seven has also been used for this herb soup in the springtime. It feels like something you would want to make for a special gathering or for someone who is struggling with their health. And maybe you could even say the nine herbs charm over it while you're making it. Crab apples, which are mentioned in the nine herbs charm, are not typically available at this time of year in Northern Europe. So I don't think that this charm specifically refers to this time of year itself. But we do have now, because of global trade, access to apples at this time of year. And you could include an apple in your soup if you like. I think some of the first plants that I'll see and be able to eat this year will include both nettle and plantain, which is called whey bread in the Nine Herbs Charm. I really like that word specifically for plantain. After reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's essay on it, which I'll include in the show notes, she's talking about becoming indigenous to place and discussing how plantain, which was imported to North America by European settlers, it was known by some First Nations people as white man's footprint because it grows along pathways and came with white people to North America. It's known in Europe as whey bread for exactly the same reason, because it grows along the side of pathways, but also because it's edible. <laughs> so it's like a road snack. But I highly recommend reading that article if you're someone who thinks a lot about how to live in a place that your ancestors are not indigenous to in a way that's respectful and meaningful. So the inclusion of plantain in your nine herb soup can have that additional depth and meaning when you connect it across continents in that way. I also like the fact that Waybread in its name has encoded in it a sense of travel and of being nourished wherever you may find yourself along the road as someone with a history of migration, perhaps. That's all I have to share of the folklore of April for today. As far as how you might apply the folklore of this month in terms of your bioregional or pagan interests and rituals, just as I said, I would highly encourage you to gather any young boughs to a reasonable and responsible extent that strike your fancy. They may be catkins from a willow, they may be mountain ash, anything that's growing and lively, and use them in some ritual purpose. You might shape them into a decoration of some kind and put it on a shrine or an altar or on your door like a wreath. You might use them in a ritual with others. You might just sit on the ground if it's possible or anywhere that you can be comfortable and hold these boughs in your hands or even stand next to where they're growing. You don't have to remove them from a bush or a tree and just really give yourself over to feeling the energy moving through them in a, an embodied and somatic way. Like let yourself get totally fascinated and hypnotized by the energy flowing through this new growth. It is some kind of drug. <laughs> I feel like it has been inspiring people for centuries. 
this sense of new growth and being able to actually be intimate with it, to feel it in relationship to your body and take that energy in, to be inspired by it and literally nourished by consuming it if it's something edible. I also encourage you to notice the movements of birds. Keep your eye open for nests and for young birds and for eggs, (laughs) eggs where they occur in nature or if you're someone who keeps chickens, just be with eggs in a more conscious way this time of year and notice how, right, eggs are a part of Easter because eggs are a part of this time of year, right? Eggs are new birth, eggs are new life, and they represent the sky opening up and revealing gold and light and rebirth. You could meditate on the figure of the fool. You can pull that tarot card out and place it somewhere prominent or find it online and make it your desktop background and just feel in your body what that sensation of standing at the edge of a cliff can feel like and what the positive aspects of being new, of being naive, of being intentionally foolish on occasion, how that can be a medicine and a balance to an overgrowth of cynicism that I kind of observe in the world at this time in history. Again, you could climb a hill at dawn, maybe on Easter or another day that's significant for you, and watch the sunrise and just be open to seeing what happens there. What can your senses take in? And how much of a blessing can you receive from the rising sun at a time of year when the whole earth is rising in the Northern Hemisphere? And if you don't know which plants and shoots are edible in your region at this time of year, I would encourage you to do research on that. In the last 10 years or so, a lot of indigenous communities have started creating books that detail the plant life that is available for foraging and has medicinal purposes in the regions where you live. If you have any communication or ability to connect with an indigenous community in your region, you can ask permission about which areas it's appropriate to forage in and in which ways, or ask for guidance. I haven't mentioned yet, but I also made a playlist for this month. There's the Goddess of the Dawn playlist from 2021, and then now I've made another shorter playlist specifically for this month that has a bit more of a focus on cuckoos and St. George's Day. It's more varied and includes the songs in this episode, and that will be on Spotify and linked in the show notes. I want to sincerely say thank you to the musicians whose songs graced this episode. Music is essential to human life, and I really urge you, but if you enjoy any of the songs in this episode or the performers, please go to their websites, which I've included in the show notes, so that you can purchase music directly from them. I always include a link to where you can buy the song, whether it's on their personal website or just on iTunes. This benefits artists more than simply streaming, but of course, do both. (laughs) And thank you very much to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the opening theme to Fair Folk. If you like my work and you're interested in what I'm doing and you want to hear about things as they're happening and courses that I teach, etc., I highly recommend getting on my mailing list. I don't send out a lot of emails at this point in time, but I do send out emails when things are happening. 
And I'm not as active on social media at this moment. So if you want to be connected with what I'm doing and you also want to get discounts to things that I'm offering for sale, my mailing list is the place to be. So please join that. Please subscribe to the podcast and please share it with anyone you think might enjoy it. That's how people find it. The instrumental song that you heard while I was reading the Nine Herbs Charm was called A Madre de Jesu Cristo by Truver Medieval Minstrels. I'll close with an American folk hymn that I feel encapsulates the essence of springtime and indirectly maybe refers to the dawn goddess, or at least the dawn, the sacredness of the dawn, with this reference to morning stars and a sense of internal rebirth figured as daybreak in the soul. This is Bright Morning Stars Arising by Tony and Irene Salatan. Take good care, happy spring, and I'll talk to you soon. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Days are breaking in my soul. Oh, where are our dear fathers? Oh, where are our dear fathers? Oh, where are our dear fathers? Some are down in the valley praying. Some are down in the valley praying. Some are down in the valley praying. Days are breaking in my soul. Some have gone to shouting. Some have gone to heaven shouting. Some have gone to heaven shouting. Days are breaking in my soul. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Days are breaking in my soul.